Howdy friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 77 of the Popecast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter and a reminder that all of the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Considering the luscious white beard of our Pope today, the sponsor for today's episode once again is our friends over at Catholic Balm Co. They have everything from beard balms, beard oils, lotion bars, natural deodorant, and a ton of other great smelling stuff that you can find at catholicbalm.co, and you can enter the word Pope, P-O-P-E, at checkout for 10% off your entire order. So once more, that's catholicbalm.co and the word Pope at checkout. Thanks again to Catholic Balm Co. for sponsoring the podcast. Now, today's episode is about a pope who may well have single-handedly kept the known world from a very, very different future. In fact, 2021 marks the 450th anniversary of his masterstroke, a convening of both corporeal and spiritual armies to lead the Catholic Christian West to victory in one of the greatest sea battles ever fought. Now, although we covered him in one of the earliest episodes of the show, to celebrate this great occasion this week, it's a podcast redux of Pope number 225, the Pope who saved Western civilization, Pope St. Pius V. Antonio Ghisleri was born in the Lombardy region of Italy in 1504, the son of a poor but noble family. His early years were spent as a shepherd, an interesting nod to the future, no less, but at 14 he caught the eye of the Dominican order, specifically two priests who caught on quickly to his intelligence and simple virtue. Antonio joined the Dominicans as a novice, taking the name Michel for St. Michael the Archangel, and was ordained a priest a decade later, in 1528. During his 16 years as a professor in Pavia in northern Italy, Michel was a professor of philosophy and theology as well as the master of the novices, effectively the guy in charge of forming the youngest Dominicans. On this last point, he was many times elected to be in charge of various priories, little monasteries or houses where groups of the novices lived in community. This was a time when morals typical to the clergy and those aspiring to the clergy were at a strikingly low bar, not unlike our current time. And so Michel made it his goal in his formation of young men to insist upon discipline and growth in the monastic virtues of humility, silence, and obedience. More than anything, Michel's effectiveness as a teacher undoubtedly came from his being a witness first, uh, four centuries earlier hearkening of Pope St. Paul VI, one might say. He was constantly fasting and doing penance, would spend long hours in adoration in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and as the Catholic Encyclopedia recounts, he, quote, traveled on foot without a cloak in deep silence, or only speaking to his companions of the things of God, end quote. Of course, the zeal and demand for greatness from a man like Father Michel rubbed many the wrong way, but he didn't particularly care. The church had other plans for him, when once again his intelligence and virtue preceded him. The man who would eventually come immediately before Father Michel in the chair of Peter, Paul IV, then known as Cardinal Carafa, did appreciate the zeal of the Holy Dominican and enlisted his help in numerous roles battling heresy throughout the Christian world which culminated with him getting a nice red hat and being named Inquisitor General in 1557. This gave now Cardinal Ghisleri the license he needed to fight the scourge of spreading Protestantism and reform the church of her bloatedness, laxity, and clerical abuses, which he had of course fought so diligently against since his early days as a priest, but this time on a much wider scale. We'll cite a brief example just to show the Cardinal's fortitude. At the time, as was the case many times throughout papal history, nepotism was particularly rampant. 
Pius IV, the man who Cardinal Ghislieri would follow as Pope in 1566, wanted to make his 13-year-old nephew a cardinal, presumably to win the title of funnest uncle, but the stalwart cardinal put up what the Catholic Encyclopedia called, quote, insurmountable opposition, end quote, and was able to convince the Pope otherwise, in keeping with maybe his no red hats for teenagers rule, something like that. Well, upon Pius IV's death in early December 1565, the papal conclave was convened, and despite his express wishes against being elected, and thanks to the great support of St. Charles Borromeo, a fellow cardinal, Pope Pius V was chosen as the next successor of St. Peter. Borromeo, who was also one of the key players at the recently concluded Council of Trent, supported Pius due to having a, quote, high esteem for him on account of his singular holiness and zeal, end quote and assured his brother cardinals that the church would be better with him as pope. Pius V was officially installed on his 62nd birthday, January 17, 1566. His simple and penitent way of life didn't change a bit, even after he donned the white cassock. Contemporary accounts even note that he would wear a hair shirt under his clothes, would frequently be seen traveling barefoot, and despite an insane schedule, would still spend hours in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Speaking in his regular mode of operations as Pope, the Catholic Encyclopedia notes that Pius V, quote, in his charity visited the hospitals and sat by the bedside of the sick, consoling them and preparing them to die. He washed the feet of the poor and embraced the lepers. It is related that an English nobleman was converted upon seeing him kiss the feet of a beggar covered with ulcers. He was very austere and banished luxury from his court, raised the standard of morality, labored with his intimate friend, St. Charles Borromeo, to reform the clergy obliged his bishops to reside in their diocese, and the cardinals to lead lives of simplicity and piety, end quote. Pope Pius also forbade things like bullfights from St. Peter's Square, because, of course, that was a thing back then. He enforced fully the decrees of the Council of Trent and supported missions in the New World, and even joined the likes of predecessors St. Gregory Seventh and Pope Boniface VIII as upholders of the supremacy of the papacy over civil powers. On the sainthood front, likely with childlike giddiness, It was Pope Pius V who declared St. Thomas Aquinas a doctor of the church in 1567. To commemorate the occasion, Pius also commissioned the first edition of Aquinas' works to be produced at the Dominican headquarters in Rome, known to us now as the Angelicum, or the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. On the liturgy front, Pius V followed the direction of the Council of Trent and standardized the celebration of Holy Mass with the 1570 edition of the Roman Missal, For those unfamiliar, that's the book that clergy use to essentially know what words to say and what motions to do during Mass. The new Missal was implemented throughout the Western Church, except in places where a liturgy was being used that originated from before 1370 AD. No word on whether the Society of St. Pius I called Pius V a heretic or not, but I digress. Paired with the Missal was also a catechism in 1566 and a revised breviary, the Manual of Prayers Prayed Daily by All Clergy, two years after that. These were in use virtually unchanged for nearly four centuries until Paul VI revision in the late 1960s. Though it's fair to note that the seed of those reforms stems all the way back to the 1700s and Pope Benedict XIV, but that's a story for another day. All of the Tridentine reforms, as they came to be called, those stemming from the Council of Trent, were in service to the surging spread of Protestantism. But Pope Pius V's crowning achievement was a victory over the Ottoman Turks that has resounded through the centuries and gone down in history as one of the greatest naval battles, arguably the greatest of all time. The day was October 7th, 
1571, 450 years ago, and the battle was Lepanto. Six years prior, just before Pius was elected to steer the bark of Peter, the armies of Suleiman the Magnificent sent his fleet of 40,000 troops to siege the stubborn island of Malta. Now, he had progressively been conquering more and more formerly Christian lands, but the tiny Catholic island nation was the perpetual bee in his bonnet. Against all odds, as Father George Rutler recounts in a 2016 essay, only 10,000 Turks survived out of 40,000 to limp slowly back to Constantinople. The Ottoman Sultan was naturally none too pleased, to put it lightly, and spent the next half decade amassing an army of 300,000 fighters, and then massacring all who got in their way as they marched toward Vienna, with Rome being their ultimate goal. Following the brutal killing of 20,000 civilians in Cyprus's capital and the shipping off of 2,000 children as sex slaves to Constantinople, that is not an exaggeration, it was a frail old man in white who would ask stronger and much younger men than he, ones who in normal times may often be at each other's throats, to put aside their differences for the good of the church and for the good of humanity. The fruit of Pius V's effort was known as the Holy League, announced officially at Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome, and comprised of forces from everywhere from the Papal States, Spain, Genoa, Naples, Sardinia, Venice, and the Knights Templar. England, run by the brutal Protestant tyrant Elizabeth I, and France, who had already sold out to the Turks, were naturally of no help. Pius then implored the Universal Church to aid in the effort, financially by tithing one-tenth of all revenues from monasteries throughout Europe, and spiritually, by ordering all churches in Rome to be open for prayer day and night. He, in essence, built up two armies, one to wage the physical war, and the other to wage a spiritual one, specifically through the recitation of the rosary and asking the intercession of Mary, the Mother of God. For the battle itself, Pius chose Don Juan of Austria to lead the charge, the bastard son of the late Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and half-brother of the Spanish King Philip II. As Father Rutler writes, quote, he was everything the aged and arthritic Pope reared as an impoverished shepherd boy was not, and almost nothing of what the Pope was save for his love of Our Lady. A beguilingly handsome flirt, an elegant dancer, an acrobatic swordsman who kept a lion cub in his bedroom along with a pet marmoset, end quote. Don Juan was joined by none other than Miguel Cervantes, who after the battle would go on to, of course, write the classic story Don Quixote, both of them were all of 24 years old at the time. As Father Rutler rather sardonically notes, quote, roughly the same age as some modern youth on our college campuses who demand safe spaces to shelter them from lecturers whose contradictions of their views make them cry, end quote. Oh, how the world has changed in four and a half centuries. But at any rate, for a full and beautiful recounting of the epic battle, one should read G.K. Chesterton's poem Lepanto or the essay from Father Rutler, both of which will be linked in the show notes. In short, and against all odds, the world swung as if on a pendulum that day. Both sides set sail out onto the Gulf of Patras on the Ionian Sea off the western coast of Greece, and all of the momentum was undoubtedly in favor of the Islamic raiders and against the Christian West. To the strictly worldly-minded, it seemed that all of Europe could be under Muslim rule before long, and the Eternal City herself may soon fall. But it was not to be. A vastly outnumbered Christian fleet sallying forth into what surely seemed to be certain death, perhaps to be maybe considered a martyrdom when all was said and done, was suddenly aided by an inexplicable 180-degree wind shift, which Pius V would later attribute 
to the breath of Our Lady, if you will. As a result, the Holy League had the upper hand all of a sudden and overtook the Turks in a five-hour battle that saw all of their ships sunk, all of them, nearly 30,000 Turkish casualties and the freeing of 15,000 Christian slaves. History tells us that Pius V, at the moment of victory, far off in Rome, was in, in, in an entirely ho-hum and unrelated meeting, seemingly a world away, when he was graced with a vision of the Holy League prevailing. Although the precise details were never put on paper, Father Rutler still tells the tale beautifully. Quote, Pius V saw the scene miraculously while in the church of Santa Sabina, discussing administrative accounts with his advisor Bartolo Bassati, and announced the victory to him. Nineteen days before a messenger of the Doge of Venice reached Rome with news, no longer new, of the great victory. Let us set aside business and fall on our knees in thanksgiving to God, for he has given our fleet a great victory, he said. Five years later, the astronomer and geography Luigi Lilio died. He was a principal architect of the Gregorian calendar, implemented in 1582, and trained minds like his acting upon the testimony of witnesses calculated by the meridians of Rome and the Cursula Isles that the Pope had received his revelation precisely as Don Juan leaped from his quarter-deck to repulse the Turks boarding his vessel, and when the Ottoman galley Sultana was attacked side and stern by Marco Antonio Colonna and the Marquis de Santa Cruz, end quote. It's difficult to overstate the importance of the Battle of Lepanto. And Father Rutler goes on on this point, quote, Had the Christian fleet sunk off of western Greece on October 7th in 1571, we would not be here now. These words would not be written in English, and there would be no universities, human rights, holy matrimony, advanced science, enfranchised women, fair justice, and morality as it was carved on the tablets of Moses and enfleshed in Christ, end quote. Pius V declared October 7th, from that day forward, the Feast of Our Lady of Victory, attributing to Mary's intercession the great victory on the water that day. Victory indeed. The humble pontiff had grander plans to further diminish the power of Islam, but he was called to his reward before he could do so. Pope Pius V died on May 1st, 1572, after suffering from a painful illness over some months prior. He was beatified by Pope Clement X a hundred years later and was canonized by Clement XI in 1712. He's buried at the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. As we close this redux of the story of one of the truly great popes in the history of the Catholic Church, as we do in every episode that we're able, here's a quote from the hand of Pius V himself, specifically from the papal bull Consuerverunt Romani, exhorting the Christian faithful to pray the rosary, following the simple method of St. Dominic, who is inspired, some say from an apparition of Mary herself, to begin praying it in the 1200s. Here's Pius. Quote, For Mary by her seed has crushed the head of this twisted serpent, and has alone destroyed all heresies, and by the blessed fruit of her womb has saved a world condemned by the fall of our first parent. From her, without human hand, was that stone cut, which, struck by wood, poured forth the abundantly flowing waters of graces. And so Dominic looked to that simple way of praying and beseeching God, accessible to all, and holy pious, which is called the rosary. Following the example of our predecessors, seeing that the church militant which God has placed in our hands in these our times is tossed this way and that by so many heresies, and is grievously troubled and afflicted by so many wars, and by the depraved morals of men, we also raise our eyes, weeping but full of hope, 
unto that same mountain, whence every aid comes forth, and we encourage and admonish each member of Christ faithful to do likewise in the Lord. End quote. Well, that's it for the story of the Pope who saved Western civilization. We really hope you enjoyed it, especially if you're a, a new listener. Please, if you haven't already, leave us a rating and review over at iTunes. Uh, obviously, preferably five stars, but if you really feel like the show is one star, I guess nothing's stopping you there. But either way, reviews and uh, ratings help other people find the show who might be uh, interested in listening to it. Also, a thank you again to all of our patrons. Without you guys, we, we really could do none of this. The, the podcast will always be free to listen to, but if you'd like to join the community and help ensure that we can continue producing the show long into the future, uh, please visit patreon.com slash thepopecast. And as we head out today, let us pray for the intercession of Pope St. Pius V that we might remember these are strange times we live in, but no stranger than an age's past. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>